Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents or other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I have a special guest and we'll be talking about the village movement and how older adults can better age in community. And I'm really excited to have as my guest, UC Berkeley professor, Andrew Sharlock, who until quite recently was the Eugene and Rose Kleiner professor of aging at Berkeley School of Social Welfare where he also directed the Center for the Advanced Study of Aging Services. He has a special interest in innovative social and community supports designed to promote healthy aging and in age-friendly communities, and also just has done a variety of other work that's been really interesting about supporting older adults in the community over the course of his career. As you probably know, most older adults say that they want to remain in their homes as they age, and people are often not very excited about the possibility of having to move to a facility. So there's been a lot of interest in ways in which we might help people age in place or age in community, as it's also sometimes put. And in this episode, we might go into the difference between those two. So the village model is one approach that some communities have taken to support older adults. And we now have over 200 of them in the United States. Over the past several years, Professor Sharlak has helped lead some of the key research studying the growth of the village movement and how being in a village impacts the lives of the older adults in it. So I'm really thrilled to have him join us on the podcast today to tell us more about the village model, about what the research shows so far, and also to share insights on how community programs can help older adults age better. So Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Leslie. I'm happy to be with you. Maybe we can start by having you tell us a little bit more about your background, what kind of teaching you were doing at, at Berkeley, and your research, of course, and how you became interested, particularly in this intersection of aging and communities. Sure. I've been at Berkeley for 28 years, and before that, I was at University of Southern California for seven years, uh, teaching in the School of Social Welfare at Berkeley, and both at USC and at Berkeley, my area of expertise, as you mentioned earlier, has been aging, particularly the social aspects of aging, how, how older adults deal with some of the problems in the context of families, in the context of communities. And in my early career, I was particularly interested in the care of older adults, how we provide support for older adults. And perhaps as I've aged in it a bit myself, I've become more, much more interested in older adults and how, how they and we create community and create support. And that's led to my work now looking at the village model, looking at other ways that older adults can be engaged and involved in their communities in supportive, engaged ways. Great. So your PhD, did you start off actually within social work or within gerontology? 
I have a uh, master's degree in social work from Boston University, and I have a doctorate in psychology from Stanford. And, and so I sort of bring to my work and actually early on into my clinical practice, a focus both on individuals as dynamic, interesting, deep, complex human beings in a context which involves a variety of social systems, which sometimes uh, are helpful and sometimes not so helpful in terms of helping us as individuals be as fully alive and to be as fully uh, productive and, and have the well-being that we need and deserve. Right. Well, I always like asking people about it because uh, I think it's so interesting, those sort of like different angles from which people come at thinking about aging and older adults and 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 their lives and how um, there are just so many different disciplines and perspectives that overlap and come together. So it's just really fascinating. And of course, very gratifying for me with my work to sort of get those different perspectives. And I think just valuable for older people and their families also. So now let's talk about villages. So some people may have heard about villages either in talking to, to others, or there's sometimes been some media coverage. I think there was just recently an article in the Boston Globe about them. Tell us what exactly is you know, a village and what is the village movement? And what makes a village a village? <laughs> sure. So the, the first thing that, that I need to say, which is uh, kind of seems like oxymoron a bit, is that a village is not a physical place. We think of a village as a physical place. A village, as we as we talk about here, is really a group of older adults coming together to create their own association, their, their own club, if you will. And these are people who live in their own homes, their own apartments, usually in the same general geographic area, sometimes in the same neighborhood, sometimes in the same town. But they create their own their own association where they pay membership dues. And in exchange for those membership dues, they receive some services. There's some social activities they participate in. They receive uh, information about various kinds of uh, health improvement efforts, as well as the availability of various kinds of supports. They have volunteers and sometimes paid uh, folks who can come and provide help when you need it. But there's also responsibility involved. One of the things that makes villages unique is that the members actually own and run the organization. They create the organization. They are responsible for hiring staff if there are staff. They make decisions about the organization, about what it does, about the kind of help it provides, about whether it focuses primarily on, on more social activities or focuses primarily on providing assistance in the home or other kinds of assistance. And they're responsible for paying the, the, the dues, which cover about 50% of the cost of, of the operation. So it, it, it's somewhat unique in a couple of ways. One is it's not a physical place. It's, a, it's a, an association, it's an organization, it's like a club. The other is that the members themselves are older adults who take responsibility for the existence and the ongoing nurturing of this organization for their common well-being and their common benefit. Mm -hmm. And so are most of these villages, you know, organizationally, are they a, a nonprofit? Is that how most of them 
Yes, they, 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 they all, at least up until now, they all are nonprofits. Uh, a small number, uh, about uh, out of maybe 200, uh, maybe 25 or so nationwide, were actually started by some community organization. They might have been started by a, a senior center. They might have been started by a, a healthcare facility of some kind as sort of a, a part of the of the, the overall structure. But 85 to 90 percent were really just a group of, of people living in a community who heard about this idea and said, huh, that sounds pretty cool. Why don't we see if we can get something like that going here? And there's actually a national association called the Village to Village Network of these individual villages, uh, these village organizations that are scattered all over the all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk a little bit more about you know, how, how villages support their members and what, you know, what you found out in, in doing the research you've done. But before we get into that, there are other community-based ways to support older, older adults. And so could you talk briefly about how the villages are different from something such as, uh, for instance, a, a naturally occurring retirement community, which, sure. you know, is something that I had a little bit of confusion about when I first started learning about villages. Right. So if, if villages aren't confusing enough for your listeners, uh, national occur- natural occurring retirement communities called NORCs, N-O-R-C, is even more confusing. Um, the idea of a NORC is a building like an apartment building or a block like a bunch of houses or apartment buildings or a little neighborhood where at least theoretically, originally, the majority of people are older. Now, older could be defined as 60 and above or 65 and above or even 50 above, or some people even call 40 and above. But bottom line is it's, it's, a, it's a geographical area, a small geographical area where there's lots of older people and where it was not designed, it was not purposely designed for older adults. Mm-hmm. So you, the, the classic example would be in, uh, in New York, uh, the, uh, the old co-op buildings, where you, you've got people living in, in apartments and in these co-ops and have lived there for, for years, have sometimes raised their kids there, and now are in their 60s, 70s, sometimes 80s and beyond. The buildings were not designed for, for older people, but here they are. And so a NORC is a a building or location like that. But what's interesting is that you can then think about programs that are designed to help provide support. And so many of these buildings or neighborhoods have created programs where they hire, they get public money typically, uh, this most common in the state of New York, but public money commonly to hire a social worker or some social service professionals. They might open a, a little health clinic. And so that it supports the, the people who live there as they, as they get older. And there's some social activities and the people who live there oftentimes will help to uh, perhaps sit on the board uh, or uh, help to sort of determine what happens. Uh, so it's sort of like a village in a sort of physical structure, a physical place, but it's usually, it's always actually, to my knowledge, created as a partnership between the housing provider 
and some external social service or public uh, agency. It's not started by the members themselves the way and funded by the members themselves the way that villages are. Mm-hmm. So that it's a little confusing, but but that's sort of the the critical difference. We've we've actually done quite a bit of research comparing the two models, their similarities and differences, and some of the implications uh, of that. Um, villages, uh, they're not. Uh, there there are lots of things around that kind of are similar, but what makes villages unique is the extent to which they are member created and member driven, um, more so than any other model that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to talk more about what that means than being member created and member driven. But before we go into that, maybe you can share with the audience the story of how the first village came to be, because I, I think that's a lovely story. Sure. So the village that is uh, considered the first village is uh, Beacon Hill Village in uh, the Beacon Hill neighborhood in Boston behind the, the state house there. And uh, this is a uh, neighborhood uh, that is, it's got a bunch of brownstones and cobblestone streets. And it's really uh, quite, quite delightful and quite difficult for people as they age. You can imagine the cobblestone streets, uh, pretty much all of the buildings there have stairs, um, etc. So there were a number of people living uh, in this pretty small neighborhood uh, who started talking to one another and saying, you know, we want to continue to live. We love this neighborhood. We've lived here for years. We want to continue to live here. But, you know, this is really hard. You know, everything's against us. And so they said, well, you know, what if we what if we all put a little money together and we basically hire somebody who who will help us, will help us uh, get groceries up and down the stairs, will help us take the trash out, will help shovel the, the walkway and the, the steps during the during the winter and, and provide uh, rides when we need to get somewhere. All those kinds of things that, that are getting more challenging. Um, and they, they did this and, and they called this person a concierge because the idea was if you go and stay at a, at a fancy hotel, there's somebody, there's somebody, there's a concierge desk. And mm-hmm. if you need something, uh, you know, you need some laundry done, you, you need a tooth, toothbrush, you need to make reservations for dinner, whatever, you call the concierge and they arrange things. So mm-hmm. they wanted to hire somebody who would arrange things. A fixer. And a fixer. Exa- exactly. And so they created this first village called Beacon Hill Village. Uh, they all contributed money. They hired somebody. Uh, but was what was really most important to them was that they were in charge, that they, they ended up creating their own little nonprofit, but that the, the members of the village and their representatives who were, on the, who were on the board were in charge of deciding how much money needed to be collected, how it would be used, who would be hired, what they would do, what was what was legitimate, what wasn't legitimate, and so that was that was the first village that's considered a village. It, it, I, I I choose my words because in reality there there were there was at least one previous entity that actually was called a village and actually had all the characteristics of a village and mm. was started ten years previously, but the village movement dates to. 2001, when this group of people in Beacon Hill got together 
and 2002 when they formalized their relationship into a 501c3 nonprofit organization that they called Beacon Hill Village. And they that subsequently was written up in an article in the Boston Globe that went viral, or at least as viral as something could go in 2005 or whenever this was written. And people all over the country began to contact and even visit Beacon Hill Village to find out what, what are you doing? How do you do it? How can we do it? The folks at Beacon Hill Village put together a, a little guidebook um, that they sold. And then other reporters in other parts of the country, the New York Times, Washington Post, and then uh, throughout the country picked up on this idea. And eventually people all over the country were talking about it. So in the San Francisco Bay Area, where where I live, almost every uh, little town or city has either a village or a group of people who are talking about organizing a village. So it really has become something that has changed the, the discourse among many older adults. Sounds like an idea that has caught on. So now you are, you know, an academic, so uh, you teach and you especially do research. And tell us a little bit about, you know, why it's important to do research about ideas like the village and then about, you know, the kinds of questions that you and your colleagues were tried to answer through your research these past several years on the villages. Sure. Um, and we've been studying villages now for, I don't know, eight or nine years. The uh, I think I, I first got interested in the idea of villages uh, because, because we we there's so much focus in the news on the problems of aging, and here were groups of people who were coming together to create solutions in innovative ways. Mm. But there were questions that were being raised. The most basic question was, can they do it? Uh, it's fine for people in Boston living on Beacon Hill, who frankly are are pretty advantaged folks to to try and create something but is this something that really has applicability around the country so the first question that we wanted to ask was is this feasible does this make sense can can a group of of older adults living in a community get together and really create their own viable organization that that, that can be helpful so that was question number one and the question number two is what difference does this make? Does it does it really have any input impact? Because there's some people who were who were saying, "Oh my God, this is this is going to solve all of our problems uh, in aging. Uh, people won't go to nursing homes. They won't they won't you know need help. They won't need in home care. This is you know the, it'll save the the government uh, zillions of dollars. We've solved all our problems, which seemed a little unrealistic. And other people saying that ah, it's just a bunch of people having some social club is not going to make any, you know, any difference at all. And so we wanted to figure out where the truth lies. So, right. so that's the work we've been doing is, is really trying to, to assess uh, how viable these organizations are and then also um, what impact they're, they're having. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting too, the, the question of, you know, will it solve all our problems? Because um, through, uh, I want you to tell us more about what you, you know, you're, the work of you and your colleagues has has shown, but one question that I have is, well, how, especially since these are member created and member driven, you know, what did they perceive as the problems that they were intending to solve? Mm -hmm. And because to me, it's always interesting to see how, how older adults and families think of the problems they are to solve versus the way that some of us as, you know, experts or just uh, individuals or professionals who come from a different perspective, you know, see things as 
problems because there's a sometimes a disconnect or just you know imperfect overlap so what did you what did you find that that the the older people starting villages saw as like the problems they intended to solve and and how does that compare to you know what other experts in aging might consider the problems to solve right so so i have to say that that the in the early days a lot of the um sort of the original early sort of creators of villages talked about um, keeping people out of nursing homes. Mm. They talked about being available 24-7 for whatever whatever a member might need. And uh, as time has gone on, uh, they've begun to realize that that's not realistic. And so uh, it's interesting because we have interviewed uh, members themselves when they first uh, join a village to find out, well, what are they looking for? And and the number one, it's interesting, the number one thing that they're looking for is peace of mind. Mm. It, it was really, it was really interesting. It wasn't something that where they said, oh, I need help with this or I need help with that. They said, you know, I want to know that that there's other people around that I can call and that I can access when, you know, when I need help, I don't need help right now or every day. But so that was number one. Number two was um, there are were some specific kinds of, of of assistance, things typically transportation, getting to the doctor or, or getting rides when you when you need it, or having somebody come in and change a light bulb that you can't reach without standing on a on a chair on a table, or reprogram your remote control, or um, take out the the garbage uh, when you got to wheel the garbage can, you know, up to the street, or or uh, shovel your your driveway or your walkway uh, for people who, who live in places where you get snow, uh, unlike uh, us here on the California coast. Mm -hmm. um, and the third thing was a sense of community. Mm. People saying, you know, as I get older, I've lost family members, people have moved away, that my, I hardly know my neighbors. I, I, I feel like I'm invisible. And here's an here's a opportunity to connect with other people who are my age, who are somewhat like-minded, and to be part of something that's bigger than myself not just a friend, but really a, a community. So it, those are things that are kind of subtle. And frankly, sometimes policymakers uh, might uh, sort of say, oh, those things don't, don't really matter. Right. But maybe this is my psychologist background talking. But, you know, we have to ask what does matter in life and, and, and as we get older. And a sense of community, a sense of connection, a sense that you're not alone in the world. Um, a sense that there's somebody that you can call on if you need something. Those are pretty basic and pretty important. And, and that's really what villages are, are all about. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell us a little bit more. I know you've, you've done lots and lots of research over the past several years, but what are some of the key things you found out in terms of answering that question of how doable is it outside a particular environment such as Boston, Beacon Hill? And then what difference does it make in people's lives? So in terms of the, the feasibility, uh, to some degree, the, the, uh, uh, the proof is in the pudding here, I guess. The number of villages has been doubling about every, every three years, not quite Moore's Law, but, uh, but doubling about every, every three years. So now there's more than 200 uh, villages in, uh, in the United States and probably uh, at least that many who, that are in, in formation. And of the villages that have been created in these 
past 15 or 16 years, we estimate that there's fewer than 10%, probably between 5 and 10% that have failed or that have failed to launch, uh, uh, if you will. So, Or that couldn't uh, remain sustained, or is that a different right, outcome? Right, yeah, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, I don't know, depends on how you look at it, but if you compare that with the uh, rate of failure of, uh, of restaurants or pretty much any other organization or entity, uh, they're doing uh, amazingly mm-hmm. uh, well. And especially if you consider these are people who, you know, are like you, me, or anybody else who's listening who who don't necessarily have a background that in nonprofit administration or nonprofit administration or oh. volunteer management or or you know any of the other skills that are that are required so so anyway they they've 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 survived uh, quite well. They've, I'd say, they've thrived. Uh, the average number of members has has been increasing nationwide. One of the things that villages have come to realize is that the original model was that they would be fully uh, member supported. That membership dues would cover 100% of the costs, and um, villages have found that that's just not uh, feasible. Uh, on average, about membership dues are. Uh, account for about 50% uh, of the uh, of the cost of doing business so villages have had to go out and and fundraise and so uh, so and so when you say membership dues i'm sure right. it varies you know between different areas but we're talking about sums of approximately what so the average dues nationwide is about uh, $40 per month for individuals. Uh, and it does vary from uh, nothing. There are some villages that really they don't charge anything to the maximum now is a little bit over $100 uh, a month for an individual. And they also have memberships for couples that are a little bit uh, higher than an individual membership, uh, maybe 10% higher uh, or all for, for, for a couple. But so that that's the range. It's about average $40 uh, a month uh, right. for an individual. And to recap, it sounds like the, you know, the expenses of the village usually are that they, uh, you mentioned earlier that they encourage volunteering among members, but I assume some of them probably have a few paid staff to, to coordinate things, you know, paid, you know, fixers, as we were saying, and they probably, what, what else do they, they spend on? Yeah, it's 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 really almost entirely staff. They 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 might pay a little bit of money to rent um, an office uh, or to uh, rent uh, space for a, a annual party and different things like that. Um, but for the most part, it's staff. And the stand the staff really some of it is this sort of fixer role of of helping people to to find out about services and connect people with services and make sure that the volunteer shows up when they're supposed to show up and recruit the volunteers and train the volunteers and, mm-hmm. and do, you know, nice things for the volunteers. So they want to keep coming back and solve problems. And some of it is fundraising. Some of it is interacting with other community agencies and organizations. And, uh, and for some villages, it's trying to promote the idea of villages locally, nationally, to potential funders, to policymakers, and also to advocate for changes in the local environment uh, with the planning commission or, or whatever to make their world more aging friendly, to put in a, a crosswalk or to, to put a light at a crosswalk or put in a, a bench where people can sit. Things that are that are designed to help the members of the village, but also are beneficial for 
the entire community. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you found that for the most part, they're feasible, although they, um, they're feasible to create and maintain, especially if the village finds a, a way to recruit some extra money, because otherwise membership dues on its own is, is unlikely to sustain them. And then what have you found in terms of uh, outcomes and the village's ability to deliver on what the members want from it? Sure. So, so one of the sort of interesting issues is the, the ability to age in place, to be able to continue to live um, where and, and how we want to live. And I actually uh, prefer the concept of aging in community, uh, where it's not just being able to stay in your own home or apartment, but you, where you're able to stay connected with the world outside of your four walls. Mm. Um, I don't consider uh, just staying in your own home and apartment and and being dependent on other people to meet your needs uh, as uh, really enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I consider being a full psychological and social being throughout our lives, whatever that means. And that means having contact outside of our four walls. So, uh, so to, to answer the question of what impact villages have, have had, according to our research, the number one thing is people report being more able to age in place, more confident in their ability to continue to live in their current home or apartment uh, as long as they want. And 79% of the people we interviewed said that that was a key uh, impact of their membership in, um, in a village. Uh, another key impact was the ability to get help when you need it. People saying that they've been able or they feel confident they would be able to get the help they need when they need it. And interestingly, these are impacts that we found to be um, uh, uh, significant both early on after people um, join a village and also continuing over time. The ability to take care of one's home or apartment, because one of the things that villages um, do is that they oftentimes provide volunteers and sometimes paid people who can come in and help uh, look at your at where you live and look at hazards and help to to get rid of them, to modify your environment, the space you live in, so that it's more adaptive for us as we get older. Because so many of the places that we live in were really not designed for us as we get older. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then people talk about uh, having an easier time getting to the places uh, they want to go, whether it's the doctor's office or, or other, uh, other places. Um, fewer people uh, need additional assistance with housework. Fewer people need adis- additional assistance with home maintenance. Fewer people are considering moving. So we track those kinds of variables over time, and we see uh, how those change from the time people first join the village to 12 months and and later after they've been a member of the of the village so those are the kind of of changes we see interestingly we don't see changes in their overall health and well-being mm-hmm. now we we've we sort of thought about that a bit and i think we have two main thoughts um one is that People who join villages, because, frankly, these are organizations of people who are kind of who, who who have the energy to sort of participate and be part of something, 
people join by and large when they're in pretty good health. And right. so, and so. Because that's the presumption that you're going to certainly, at least at the beginning, be able to contribute a right. fair bit, right? Right. So I think you would have to follow people for a much longer period of time to see health impacts. The other thing, realistically, is that the primary focus of villages is not on health. I mean, there's lots of anecdotal data, lots of lots of examples I could give where somebody was in a hospital and the member and the members of the village came in and they helped them. Uh, they liberated them from the hospital or from the nursing home and, <laughs> and, and true stories, really, and, and right. brought them home and, and, you know, brought them the meals and, and, and helped them make sure they took their meds and make sure they did their rehab and, and whatever and help them, them get better. There, there's a whole bunch of, of great case examples like that. But by and large, healthcare is not, what, not the business that villages are in. It's much more the social care, if you will. Um, so we we think that's sort of what's going on there, and it forces villages, I think, to be a little more realistic, and hopefully forces all of us to be a little more realistic about what we expect from a group like like villages, and what we should expect from healthcare, and and how they can or at least should work together as partners, the healthcare and the social care. Right, right. So, you know, that's interesting though, that just that people generally join when they're younger. I mean, what if there was an older person, you know, let's say in their late 80s who was starting to develop some impairments for physical mobility or, you know, maybe even cognitive impairments getting a little forgetful. And so then decided they wanted to join a village to have that uh, extra help. Or maybe it's their, their family, their adult children, you know, who are worried about them living alone, who are like, mom, you should join that village. Do, do villages, do they consider the, the member and decide to turn down some people? Or how do they, how do they manage that? So it's a real interesting question. Uh, and I'll say it depends on the village. Mm. As part of this national organization, this Village Village Network, there's a um, ongoing discussion post uh, and, uh, and a prime topic uh, that comes up quite regularly on those posts is what what to do in exactly that situation there are some villages who who essentially say we are a community everyone is welcome and we have to create a business model that can allow us to have people who are significantly impaired as well as people who are less impaired there are other villages who say you know we are we're limited. We only have a certain amount of finances and we can't be here for everybody. And so there are some people who simply, we have to refer to a traditional social service agency, for, for example. And that's a, a challenge that villages have had, to, have had to face and to continue to struggle with. There's some villages who say, we take everybody, but we only provide certain services and if you need other services, we will refer you to those services, but we cannot provide those. So there, there's a variety of ways that villages deal with this. Mm -hmm. And do they ever kind of adjust their membership dues based on and based on the uh, perceived level of need of the member or, you know, as a function of how much 
they might be able to volunteer for others versus require help. That's one thing that I wonder about. And it also, it occurs to me that there are plenty of younger people who actually have a, a higher level of need, right? There are people who are who are debilitated by a stroke or just lots of chronic illnesses by their late 50s or early 60s. And then we also have, you know, people who are 92 and still quite steady on their feet and vigorous and, uh, you know, prepared and willing to volunteer and be of service to others. So we shouldn't assume that it goes necessarily with aging. But yeah, is, is there ever a possibility of, well, you could join, but you might have to, to pay more, especially if you have the financial means to do so? So there are now uh, about 40% of villages that have we'll call them tiered memberships. They have a number of membership levels. Um, it's not typically based on um, somebody's uh, more intensive level of need. Uh, it has to do with sort of what kinds of services they they use. Uh, so for example, a village might have um, three membership levels. One level uh, might be for people who really don't don't use services at all, but just like the idea and want to be want to sort of support the, the 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 movement, and who want to come to social events and participate. Uh, another level might be for uh, people who you only need transportation, let's say, uh, and another level might be for people who need additional services or very frequent transportation. Uh, so that's that's not unusual. But villages, at least the ones I know of, do not charge sort of a, a special surcharge for people who are really high need. Um, they're, more, they're more likely to have a real uh, conversation at the level of the, the board of, you know, what are our limits and, and what do we do, not just about Mrs. Jones, but about all of us who are part of this village who, you know, sooner or later are going to need more help. Um, and, and, and regarding the, the, the issue of uh, sort of uh, what people can contribute, um, there are many villages who consider everybody as having something to contribute. So there's mm -hmm. one village I know of where even people who really are, are, are uh, who have very limited mobility and can't get out of their own homes uh, very easily or whatever, uh, have thing, have uh, activities they do over the telephone. They might, uh, they might be, um, provide telephone support where they uh, call a member periodically to check on them or to see what they need or, or whatever. Or they might uh, do a, an interview uh, when somebody joins a village to ask them a variety of questions to find out what they need and how the village can be helpful. Anyway, a variety of things that you can do over the telephone uh, that don't require you to actually be very physically mobile. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, you said earlier that the research so far shows that in many cases, you know, joining a village leads people to feel more confident in their ability to age in place. But, you know, their, their feeling of confidence about it is not quite the same as whether they actually are more likely to either stay until the end of their life, which is, I think, what people initially are, are hoping for, or at least to stay longer and minimize their time in another less another place, which they uh, at least initially perceive as less desirable. So have you been able to study that, whether it actually uh, makes a difference in terms of how often people have to relocate when they don't want to, we might say? Right. We, we haven't. The, 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 um, there's two 
issues here. Uh, one, we, what we have done is, is we ask people whether they were planning to stay in their current place or whether they were planning to move uh, and track that over time. And that the number, the percentage of people who, who plan to, to leave their current places declined. And um, we like to think that's partly either the support they're getting from the village or more likely the fact they feel more connected mm -hmm. with other people. Mm -hmm. um, but this issue of aging in place turns out to be very, very tricky to, to study. And you alluded to, to that because there are some people who are aging in place because they don't have any other options. Um, we talk about them as people who are stuck in place, mm -hmm. people who live in homes or apartments that were not designed for somebody to, to as they get older, uh, but who really can't afford you know, any other option or they don't have the kind of social supports that would help them or a place to move to. There's other people who are forced to move because of their own health or sometimes forced to move because of other circumstances. So untangling that turns out to be to be very difficult. And in fact, uh, and I've been studying this for a long time, there are no good data that exist regarding the difference between people who stay in place because they want to, people who stay in place because they have to, people who move because they want to, people who move because they have to. So, um, so the long-winded way of, of saying, no, we don't, have, we don't have good data to rely on. What we, all we have is the world as it looks through the eyes of the members themselves at this point. Right, right. I'll add that as a geriatrician and, you know, kind of given the, the, the times when we often encounter people uh, in the hospital or in crisis, a certain number of those people who are stuck not moving because they have no choice financially and just no other option, I mean, a certain number of them, eventually there is a crisis that puts them in the hospital and, and then they, they do move <laughs> right. because they just reach that point where they simply cannot go back because it's considered too unsafe or because there's just too much evidence that they're not able to adequately meet their their daily needs. Right. Now, um, let's say, I, now, if you don't mind me saying this, sometimes I think that healthcare professionals don't look fully at the situation either before the crisis, because many times if we had actually seen how the person moves around in their home or apartment, seen the problems they have, we would have seen the crisis coming before the fall occurred or before the, uh, the diabetic episode or, or, or whatever. And number two, I think oftentimes when people are, when they're in the hospital and being discharged, the healthcare professionals don't look to villages or other kinds of supports that may be available that could help somebody to transition back into their home or apartment. I think sometimes we could do a much better job of partnering between the healthcare settings and the social care providers to ease those transitions and also sometimes to prevent the crisis from occurring to start with. Right, right. No, I, I entirely agree. I mean, this is absolutely, absolutely true that we're just, you know, for many reasons, it's we're poorly equipped to go into the home and, and see people in their homes, even though that's really important to their health. And we're not well equipped to offer, you know, supports earlier and we don't do a great job at the, the discharge time too. So that is certainly true. And it's too bad for people to move at a time of crisis like that when things got really bad. It's actually often very stressful for their families. I certainly have a lot of people 
you know, writing into the site concerned about an older person who lives alone and is often, you know, refusing, quote unquote, help in a fair number of cases seems related to cognitive impairment and just having difficulty having insight into that. There's not a ton that can be done. Often the things that could be done aren't done, but, you know, in other cases, you know, lots of things are tried, adult protective services, and it still sort of ends up continuing until there is, um, until things get just so bad <laughs> that right. the person is moved during a, a time of crisis. And, and I know so, you, you've, you know, you've dealt with this previously on, on other, on other um, blogs, but um, the idea of having those difficult discussions of, yeah. of sitting down with mom or dad and asking them, what do they want? See, for me, the difficult discussion is not you can't, you shouldn't be driving, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do this. You sh it's mom or dad, I'm wondering at this point in your life, how do you see things? How do you see, you know, sort of how things are going now? How do you see the future? Because we're all getting older and not likely to get, you're not likely to get any stronger or, or, or and so what do you want and, and, and how should we respond when a happens or B happens or C happens so that there's a sense of a partnership because too often in that crisis situation, sons or daughters or other caring people come in and they take over and say, this is what you need. Right. When even people who are quite impaired still have the, um, need and I think uh, uh, the right to have some control over their own options, even if none of those options are good. It's sort of what is the best of the of all of these terrible options. So anyway. right. right. No, it's completely true. I, I, I agree. And, you know, one of the things that I often end up saying to people is everybody has preferences, you know, and no matter what their diagnosis or condition, you know, it's always important to ask about their preferences and acknowledge those and that it's uh, that people usually appreciate being, you know, given that opportunity to, to voice their preferences. And then we, you know, we'll do what we can to honor them to the extent we can. But uh, yes, earlier conversations would certainly help uh, quite a lot. And, you know, we also have a, you know, tradition, you know, kind of based on the, the communication training for palliative care of telling people, well, you know, we're going to hope for the best. We wish this for you. And should, you know, some problems arise, like what would be your preference or what would be most important during that, uh, that situation? So those are some other, you know, things that I think about. So yeah, so as you were saying, it's, it's actually pretty hard to really study uh, the outcome of whether people were able to, to stay where they wanted to be. First of all, to stay where they wanted to be, you know, with at least like the basics of their safety, you know, being tended to, and then ideally stay where they are and also be in community, you know, in, in an environment that, that uh, fully uh, meets their, you know, not just their physical needs and keeps them alive, but their social need and connected needs and helps them, them thrive. So, so it sounds like it's still hard to, to really study. And so I guess we don't really know for sure what things are more likely to help people achieve that. Well, I think we, we do have uh, pretty good data on what helps people to achieve that. Um, one is having supports having social supports, having people who you know and who know you, who you can talk to about your troubles and who you can depend on to help you when you need a little assistance. Um, it helps to have environments 
that are appropriate for your abilities and that help to compensate for your uh, limitations. And that are manageable for people that, with a varying spectrum of abilities. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. And interestingly, technology provides um, uh, a lot of potentials that we didn't have before. The, this idea of the Internet of Things, where you have devices that communicate with one another. It's possible now to have devices that will monitor not only the, the um, temperature around you, but will monitor um, whether you've fallen, for example, will will monitor your vital signs, et cetera. Um, very unobtrusive that will monitor uh, your uh, insulin levels, et cetera. Uh, very unobtrusive without you even having to, to do anything. Um, but one of the things that, that um, I think gets overlooked is helping to build the capacity of individuals themselves, helping mm -hmm. them both to learn to use some of these technologies, but also to, to maintain functioning. There's so many studies now, I know you're aware of them as geriatrician, where basic exercise, mm -hmm. older adults, or even quite impaired older adults, can help to maintain and sometimes even restore functioning to the level that people can at least be more mobile and, right. and do more. And and we 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 so often take old age as sort of a, a one-way street where, oh, I'm, I'm old, therefore, of course I'm weaker, of course I can't do things. And as much as there's some truth to that, we also can help to support both healthy lifestyles as well as some basic exercise that helps people stay more fit and, and frankly delays your onset of disease. And then the final, final thing I'll say is that we've sort of alluded to is our societal attitudes about aging tend to be so negative mm, that we don't mm -hmm. even see aging as having possibility. We don't even see older adults as having something to, to offer. And, and frankly, that's one of the reasons why I got interested in the village model was here's, here's an example where we turn to older adults and we say, you know, you create something that is for you. And we see you as having something to, to offer. Now, it's unrealistic to expect any group of people, including older adults, to do all the heavy lifting themselves. Mm -hmm. But the idea that older adults have something to offer is something that we in our society have, have only begun to grapple with. Right. And it's such a powerful, important idea. And so it's, it's wonderful that the village movement is helping to, to promote that. So it sounds like even if we don't you know, know for sure that it's how much of a difference it'll make in delaying having to move out of your home, that there are lots of benefits to being in villages, that people do end up more socially connected, um, can find more purpose in having a, a role in the community and uh, in volunteering, that it can also make certain practical things like getting certain forms of assistance a lot easier. So it, it sounds like there are enormous benefits to them. But you know, one of the things that, that comes up sometimes for people is, what should I do? for for myself or for my mother you know do you join the local village or do you think about moving to another home or another community or you know what other things you do so so if somebody were to approach you and say well my, my mom's 85 and lives alone and i worry about her future which what should she do what are how do you respond when people ask you that because uh, i get asked that i imagine you do too <laughs> sure uh Classic cocktail party question. Exactly. Right? Yes. Oh, you're working with older adults? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there, I'd say there's no 
simple cookie cutter answer for everybody. The okay. first the first question is what does she want mm. given the mm -hmm. given the given the balance between staying in her own home and being more isolated if, if that's the reality and moving somewhere that such as a purpose-built um, congregate living environment senior involvement environment retirement community um, which which feels more consistent from her point of view with how she wants to live her life. So that's number one. Number two, wherever mom is living or going to live, what are the supports that are available as well as the social connections and social opportunities? So, so seeing what supports does she need, what supports will she need going forward, and how can those be met? Sometimes, you know, your son or daughter-in-law lives or daughter lives around the corner and they can take you where you need to go and, and, and help you with what you need. But, you know, for most of us, that's not a reality mm -hmm. anymore. And so, gee, mom, you know, when you need to go to the doctor, if you get to the point where driving isn't working, how are you going to get there? Because I mean, I, I can help when I can, but you know, I've got this and that and the next thing. And so just realistically, I think we ought to, we ought to think about this. Um, so that's number one. And, 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 but also not to minimize the social side as well. So, because there's so many older adults who say, you know, I'd like to move or I should move, but I know the people who live in this area. I, I go to my hairdresser. I I go to my doctor. I go to the market, and they 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 all know me, and I know them. And I don't want to start all over again mm -hmm. somewhere else. And that's real. That's realistic. That sometimes we say, "Oh, that mom, you know, that that's not important. You'll you'll meet new people." Let me tell you, if you're 85 years old and you're not feeling so good. You do not want to be going to the local senior center and trying to meet new people. Most yeah, of us don't. It's not that you know? easy. Yeah. It's not that easy. So, mm -hmm. so it's, it, 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 there's not a simple answer, but, but for some people, it clearly is moving to a purpose-built senior environment. But for many other people, even if they can afford that, that's not really what they want. They want to stay where they are, and they're willing to make some sacrifices to make that happen. And then it's the question of how do we help them be as safe as possible and help them get their needs met as much as possible. And the other thing that needs to be said is that most of those congregate living and retirement communities are expensive. Mm, and most are, older yeah. adults can't afford to live there even if that's what would be best for them, or or for the the facilities that are low low income housing. There's waiting lists that sometimes are are years. Mm -hmm. So these are difficult, challenging situations. But but the basic idea here is that conversation is not to assume that one answer is right, another answer is wrong. Uh, as much as we worry about leaving people in place and that they might fall or they might hurt themselves in other ways, moving people, especially out of their familiar environment, oftentimes is so deleterious on somebody's both uh, mental health, but oftentimes on their physical health. And it can lead to a lot of other problems that we don't anticipate. Right, right. Yeah, usually what I tell people is, you know, there's really no easy answer. 
they all have their trade-offs. They're kind of definite short-term trade-offs. And then they all come with kind of some uncertainties and risks down the line. Because, you know, we usually can't predict more than a few years out what's uh, likely to happen to someone's health. Although I would say we can predict that, you know, most people have a, you know, if they live long enough, we'll eventually have some, have a, a fairly high likelihood of having some mobility limitations. Absolutely. And that a certain number of people also start to get forgetful. So those are not negligible possibilities. Uh, but, you know, we don't know exactly when that'll come up and... So yes, people usually don't find that very satisfying. <laughs> it depends and we don't, you know, there's no easy answer, but I, I think that's what we, we usually end up saying. So, uh, well, maybe in closing, um, I can ask you a little bit about, about yourself. I think you're of boomer age and you're starting to transition out of your, your academic work and wind down your, your academic career. So what um, kinds of thoughts have you given to your own aging future? Are you, uh, are you part of the village near you or planning to join it or, you know? What are your thoughts? So, uh, Leslie, I'm 67 years old, and and yes, I'm right, right in the uh, in the middle of this. Uh, I've lived. Uh, I raised my my wife and I raised our kids uh, in a nice uh, uh, suburban house that uh, in a nice suburban neighborhood that is uh, totally um, not designed for people to get older. We have uh, stairs, uh, totally automobile dependent. Uh, so. We are looking to downsize and move to a uh, an environment that's that's uh, smaller, that's more walkable, and uh, where there's more of a of a community, but still stay connected with our social network that we've built up over uh, over uh, 30 years uh, here. Um, so that so I'm right in the middle of that. Uh, there is a uh, village that is developing uh, in the local area, not in the town I live in, but in the, the next town over. And I've uh, talked to them. And if we stay here, I will definitely uh, be part of that. Mm, okay. Well, uh, wonderful. Well, it's just been terrific to hear more about uh, the village movement and just, you know, this idea of community and how important communities are to, to all of us and just the, the important role they can play in older adults' lives and um, this wonderful way in which older adults can, can create and sustain an important community. Do you have any last tips or suggestions for older adults or anybody really who would like to learn more about villages or maybe even, you know, look into starting a village? I mentioned earlier, there's this national village to village network, and it has a website, uh, vtvn.org. Uh, yes, I'll post a link in the show notes too. So. Right. And you can go online there. It, there's a map that shows you every village that exists in the United States, including some that are, that are in, in development. Um, and that's probably the best place to get information about villages as well as to connect or to start a village in your own community if one doesn't, uh, doesn't already exist. And uh, as I say, I, I, I'm not a, uh, a, a member of a village. I, I, I'm not, I don't promote uh, the village movement, mm -hmm. but I'm an interested observer who uh, really has been uh, quite impressed by all that, uh, that villages have, have done in spite of some, some limitations. What they do is not easy. I think we have to remember that. And so it's really a credit to them that they managed to, to, to persist. Mm -hmm. um, because as you said, it's not, it's not easy to run and maintain a nonprofit. <laughs> you right. know? And, and, and the vill these villages consider themselves 
a movement. It's the village movement. So it's not simply organizations or services. They really consider this a movement designed to really engage older adults in their own lives and in, and in helping one another and to really transform the nature of aging. Uh, eventually. So uh, I find that very exciting. Yeah, no, that's really inspiring too, to have that bigger vision. Any last words of advice or insights that you want to share with the audience before we, we close up? No, I, I think this is great. I appreciate your questions and your interest and the interest of your, of your audience. And uh, really the most important final thought I have is that we all are aging and that we all have some control over how we age and that in partnership with other people, we can work to create and maintain community. We can work to create and maintain our own well-being and have what we want as we get older to the extent possible. Right. Well, that's a wonderful thought to end on. Thank you so much, Andy, for coming. Thank you. My pleasure. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.